Turn with me to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10. In just a moment, I'm going to begin reading in verse 6 of Judges chapter 10. If you haven't been with us in the sermon series or if you're like me and you just forget sometimes, let me remind us that as we've been going through this book of Judges, we have seen a cycle in this book. And the cycle has repeated itself five times. This is the fifth time that we have seen this cycle in the book. And what happens is the people of God rebel. Ruin then comes on the people of God. The people of God repent and turn back to God. Then God raises up a rescuer for them. Things go well in the land as long as the rescuer lives. But then when the rescuer dies, then we repeat the cycle. And we've seen this happen five times in the book of Judges. And we see it again today as we come to Judges chapter 10, beginning in verse 6. Look what it says. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the rebel part, right? They've done what's evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, what did they do? They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So we have this rebellion that goes on. The people of God do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so then ruin comes upon them. Verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel. So this ruin has come upon the people of Israel, and we keep seeing this cycle over and over again. This is the fifth. If you're reading this book, you're like, I've seen this story before. I've heard this story before. This is the fifth time that this has happened. Why does God keep telling this story over and over again? Why does he keep telling us the same thing in the same words? Why is he saying this over and over and over again? What's the lesson for us? What are we supposed to take away? God's just repetitive. He likes to repeat himself. Why does he tell us this over and over? Of course, the reason is because we sin over and over again as the people of God. We're always turning from God. And we, if we're living the way that we should, should be a people who are always repenting, who are always turning back to God. And so by showing us this cycle, we learn that we, as the people of God, need to repent over and over and over and over again. That it's not just a one-time thing, that it's something that we would do throughout the Christian life. Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he nailed the 95 theses to the church house door at Wittenberg, the very first thesis that he had was this, that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. You hear that? That the entire life of believers is to be a life of of repentance. In fact, we define growth in the Christian life as daily, day by day, dying more and more to sin and living more and more unto righteousness. 
Now, in order to grow in the Christian life like that, we have to see our sin more and more on a daily basis so that we can always be turning from that sin and turning back to God because that is the definition of repentance. I wonder, do you see the Christian life in this way? Do you see the Christian life as more and more looking for my sin so that I can kill my sin, I can mortify my flesh? Are you committed to seeing your sin more and more so that you can turn from it? I don't like thinking about the Christian life. I want to think, you know, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before, and it is. But there's this constant need to identify sin. I hear preachers talk, preachers who pack out Colosseums, and they say, well, I don't like to talk about sin. I just like to give a positive message. (laughs) Well, I do too. I'm a good news guy. I like to preach the good news. But it begins with seeing our sin. That's how the good news of the gospel begins. Do you see the Christian life in this way? Are you committed to seeing your sin so that you can over and over and over again, like the text does, see sin and turn from it? If you don't see the Christian life in this way, I want you to know that this text works really hard to tell us that we should view life as the people of God in this way. And the text works really hard to show us what true repentance looks like. And then the text gives us just an egregious example of why it's important for the people of God, not the people out there, the people of God, to always be looking for our own sin so that we can turn from it. Let's look at the text because I want you to see these things because this text is all about a call to repentance. First, the text shows us what repentance looks like. And we see that when we come to verse 7. Did you catch that word that was used there? In verse 7 it says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines. Now, Judges has used this language three times previously. That language of sold is used in Judges 2. It's used again in Judges 3. It's used again in Judges 4. Here we are in Judges 10, and he's using this language again. We haven't talked about it yet. So I want to unpack it a little bit because it shows us why repentance is so important. This word sold is a strong word. Think about it with me. If I sell my car to somebody else, then that means as the new owner of the car, that person can do whatever they want to to the car, right? That's getting at what the sense of this word is here, that God sells Israel. He sold them into the hand of the Philistines, It's not that God totally abandons his people. That's not what it is. But I think clearly what it's saying is that God does withdraw some of his protection so that the things that we serve begin to own us. They begin to dominate us. If you want to see the same concept in the New Testament, read Romans chapter 1 beginning at about verse 18 where we're told the wrath of God is being revealed against the godlessness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
because what may be known about God has been made plain to them. They know there's a God, but they worship created things instead of the creator who is to be forever praised. Amen, Paul says in that passage. And when people repeatedly turn from worshiping the true God and look to created things, even though they know that there's a God greater than what they're turning to, three times in Romans chapter 1, we're told that God gives them over. God gives them up. That's the concept we see here, that God sells his people in the sense that he withdraws his protection so that the things we have begun to serve begin to own us. They begin to dominate us. And God allows the things that we trust in instead of God to be the ruling power in our lives. Now, what does that look like? Let's say the highest value in your life is your kids, right? If the highest value in your life are your children, and and listen, our children are important. But they're not the highest thing. They're not higher than God. But if we make them the, the most important thing, then what happens with our kids is what controls our hearts. That's what, ha- that's what controls our emotions. So when our kids are doing well, we're doing well. When our kids are not doing well, we're down. We're depressed. Our whole outlook on life det- is determined by how our kids are doing. And if our kids are our highest value, it determines... The choices that we make, we'll sacrifice everything else for our kids because nothing is higher than our children. And of course, we do it in other areas of life. Sometimes we do it with money. Sometimes we do it with our job. Sometimes we do it with popularity, that if what people think is the most important thing to us, if that's our highest value, then we're happy when our public relations are good. We're sad when our uh, popularity levels drop. And we make all of our decisions based on what will make us the most popular. And so the text is saying that what God does is that whatever it is we're looking to for our fulfillment, whatever we're looking to for our happiness, whatever it is that we've made the highest value instead of him, God gives us over to that thing. He sells us to that thing. It's as if God's saying, well, let's see how merciful that thing is that you've made the highest value. Let's see how gracious and forgiving it is. And those things are not gracious and forgiving. They're exacting. And they demand from us. And God sells us to them so we experience and taste that ruin. God's saying, let's see how effective that thing is at saving you. Let's see how effective that thing is at guiding you. And of course, it's not effective at all. It affects decisions, and we make poor decisions. So it's important that we learn to repent so that we're not sold to or given over to things that we make higher than God. Now, the text here specifies for us what repentance looks like. We get a really clear picture here. And so if repentance is important, we need to know what it looks like. We need to know what it is and what it's not. And the text does that for us. It gives us one picture and says, okay, you see this? And we're like, yeah. And the text says, that ain't it. But this is repentance. So look at that with me. What does repentance look like? It's important that we learn to repent so that we're not sold to or given over to other things. What does true repentance look like? Look at verses 10 through 14. 
in verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We've sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Now, to me, that sounds like repentance, right? I mean, look, they're saying, they're crying out to God, they're admitting sin, and they're specifying, we've forsaken God, we're serving these other things, and they're crying out to God because the Philistines are coming down hard on them, right? They're oppressing them, and they have been for a long time. That looks like repentance. God's not buying it. Look what he says in verse 11. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Masonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen, let them save you in your time of distress. So you hear God in some of that language saying, look to these other gods, see how effective they are at saving you, see how merciful they are if you want to look to them instead of to me. Well, what's going on? That seems kind of Harsh, God, they're crying out to you. And it seems what's going on here is that just hating our circumstances and then crying out to God is not true repentance. Especially when we hate our circumstances, we're tasting the ruin that our, the ruin that our idols have brought upon us. And then when we really cry out to God and ask him to make our idols work better for us, that's not repentance. It's still depending on our idols. You see, true repentance looks like this it looks like trouble comes along so that we become aware somehow we become aware of our sin and we see our sin and yes we begin to pray we begin to cry out to god like these folks are doing but then there seems to be this 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 requirement this necessity that we fight through to real repentance a lot of times when i first cry out to god what what do i usually cry out lord my kids are failing and I'm miserable, so will you fix my kids, right? And that's what my idol is. I'm asking him to make my idol work better. Lord, my job's not going the way that I want it to, and I have to have that for self-importance, for self-worth, so will you fix this situation for my job? I'm just asking him to make my idol work better. Lord, please help me in this financial situation. So we don't like our circumstances and we cry out to God. But think about it. What do we do when we say that? When we say, God, we want you to fix X, then really whatever that is, X is your highest value. That's what your ultimate God is. And what we're doing in that situation is we're just using the real God as a means to an end to accomplish what we really want, to give us what our highest value is. And God says, I'm not going to do that. I want to see repentance from your heart. What God wants is your heart. He wants you to want him above all else and to be willing to let everything else go for him. I think you see that in the text as we keep going. Look at verses 15 and 16. Look what the people say. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. That's good. We need to recognize sin. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient 
over the misery of Israel. Do you see what happened there? They recognized sin. They confessed it as sin. Then they acted on it. They turned from their reliance on us. They got rid of the idols, right? Their actions are lining up with their words. And they're coming to God and says, God, do whatever you want to with us. We just want to be right with you. Yes, we want you to fix this situation, but we're willing to take whatever it is. You are the highest thing to us. Then God is impatient with their misery, and he raises up a rescuer from them. Because at that point, God is the highest value in their life. And when we look to him in that way, he fulfills us like nothing else can. So we get this very clear picture of what, of what repentance is and what it's not. Let me just stop right there. You may feel like you've been crying out to God, that you've been admitting sin, and it doesn't seem like God's moving, he's not acting. I would say, based on the text, look in your heart. See if maybe you're just asking God to prop up one of your idols. Maybe you're just using God as a means to an end. I would encourage you to use this pattern to say, Lord, yes, this is a desire I have, but you do with my kids whatever it is you want to do with my kids. You do with my job whatever you want to do with my job. Yes, I want this to happen, but Lord, I want you above all else. I would encourage you to repent in that way as reflected in the text. And let me show you why that is so important that we don't hold on to other things. Why is that so important? Why do we need to repent in this way? Why do we need to learn to repent over and over and over again in this way? You're about to get an illustration. It is a horrible illustration. It's an egregious example of why, as Christians, we need to be devoted to identifying our sin, to rooting it out of our lives so that it does not lead us to ruin. Why is that important? Well, the next thing in the story is God raises up a rescuer. Our next judge is Jephthah. You see him there in 11, verses 1 through 3. I thought about characterizing him for you, but I'm just not even going to comment. Let me just read you what the text says and see what you think about this guy, Jephthah. Okay? Judges 11, listen to verses 1 through 3. Now, Jephthah... The Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. I'm sure that's what they said, son of another woman. I'm sure that's exactly the term that they use. Thank you for the laughter over here. I'm thinking they said some other things as well, son of some other choice words. Verse 3, then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Worthless fellows collected around him. Do you ever know anybody like that? Somehow, worthless fellows collect around them somehow. If you've got the NIV, I like the translation any better than that. It says, a gang of scoundrels collected around him. Do you get the picture of this guy? You know, when we're thinking God's going to send a hero, we're tending to think, you know, someone tall 
and handsome and articulate and successful, somebody who's got a degree from an Ivy League school who comes from the right family because we think if you came from the right family, then you must be emotionally uh, in a good place, that you're emotionally secure, uh, that you are emotionally stable. We're generally looking for a hero with no criminal history, and this guy is none of those things. The text says that he is the son of a prostitute. Evidently, he lived with his father for a while, but then he's driven out of his home because the sons of his father's wife say, you're not going to have an inheritance here. And evidently, his father doesn't intercede or doesn't say, the text doesn't say that he did. And so he's cast out. This very dysfunctional, he comes from a very dysfunctional family, a very dysfunctional home. And so he goes out and lives in the wilderness with these worthless fellows, with this gang of scoundrels. And basically what they're doing out there is living a life of crime. They're bandits. He is the head of them. He's a great warrior. He's basically the head of a crime syndicate. Okay? He's like a mob boss. He's the biggest and baddest of all of them. If you want to romanticize it, he's like a pirate who takes from other people in order to make a living and leads a group of thieves who do the same thing. So he's a criminal. He's an outcast from a dysfunctional home. And God uses him to be the rescuer of Israel. Now, i got to stop right there. I, I love that about this story. I love it that God often uses people you would never expect him to use to accomplish some things that you would never expect those kind of people to accomplish. Now, why is that? It's not just because I love underdogs. It's so freeing to me. Because if God only loves and if God only uses perfect people, guess what? I've got no hope. That means he's not going to ever love or use me. But if God loves and God uses broken and messed up people like Jephthah, that gives us great hope. That means God could love us. And that means God could use us as broken and messed up as we are to do some amazing things for his kingdom. That's why this gives me such hope. Hope to see God work in this way. Well, if you keep reading in the text, not only is Jephthah a mighty warrior, but he proves to be a very shrewd leader. As I studied him, I was very impressed with him. Read sometime this week as he negotiates with the elders of Israel in verses 4 through 11. They come to him and they're begging him to save them. And in his speech to them, he sounds a whole lot like God did in chapter 10. Like just, for, just to give you a taste there in verse 7, uh, they come to him and they're asking him to save him. And he says, look, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? It's almost the same thing God said before, right? Yeah, you come to me crying out to me now and I've saved you then and I've saved you then. But I'm not doing it anymore because you don't really want me or value me. You just want to use me for what you want. 
Jephthah responds that way, and they promise him, no, look, if you, we value you. If you overcome the Philistines, we will make you the head over everybody. That's the deal he gets. So he's like, okay, I'll take that deal, because he's a great warrior. Then he turns, and you can read about this in verses 12 through 28, and he negotiates with the king of the Ammonites. And his argument is really intricate. He uses historical arguments. He uses theological arguments, some of their own theological arguments against them. He uses this legal precedent. I was very impressed with his negotiations. But you can read in verse 28 of chapter 11, But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So he doesn't respond And war is inevitable. That's fine. He's a great warrior. That's what they went to this guy for, right? Because he's a bad man, and he can take care of business. And he does. But before he does, Jephthah makes a tragic, horrible vow. And if you've ever heard of Jephthah, if you look him up on Wikipedia, not now, later, but if you ever look him up, this is kind of what he's known for. If anybody remembers him, they remember him for this. Because he's going to fight the Ammonites, and Jephthah makes this tragic vow. You see it there in verses 30 and 31. Let's read it. He's going out to face the enemy, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said... If you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, that shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. That's the vow that he makes. He's saying, Lord, if you'll do this big thing for me, then I'll make this big sacrifice for you. So he makes this vow. And then you can read in verses 32 and 33 how Jephthah indeed does prevail over the Ammonites. And then let me just read this next part of the story. So much of this I wanted to describe to you, but I think it's better just to get out of the way, let the text do the work, right? So he makes this horrible vow. He goes and he's successful. Pick up in verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father... You have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. 
Oh, my gosh. That is a horrible story. Why did he even make the vow? Why does he keep the vow? Why does she come back? I'm expecting she leaves for two. She gets a two-month head start, and she's out of here, right? She comes back. And then why is this story even included in here? This is a horrible, terrible story. Why would the author of Judges include this in here? Well, let's unpack some of those questions. Why make such a vow? Why would he keep the vow? Why include this in this book of Judges? What is it that the original author wants us to learn here? Before I answer those questions, let me just say very clearly, I want to say very clearly from the beginning, that if you read Deuteronomy 12 and verse 31, which was in existence before this, it comes before this part of the story, it was written several hundred years before this, you can read in Deuteronomy 12 and verse 31, where God makes clear that he hates human sacrifice, he sees it as detestable, he calls it an abomination to offer our kids as a burnt offering, so there is no doubt about God's will in this matter, right? Well, that just makes it worse. Why would you make the vow? Why keep the vow if that's the case? Why would the story go this way? Well, let's answer those questions. First, why make this kind of a horrible vow? And why keep it? Here's the reason why. Evidently, Jephthah grew up with some really pagan ideas and pagan influences. I don't know if they came from his home, who were worshiping idols. I don't know if it came from the woods with the worthless men. But he's obviously been influenced by really pagan thoughts. It's these other religions that would sacrifice their children to God. And it's one of the reasons why God drove them out of this land to begin with. Because he hates this kind of stuff. But evidently Jephthah has been really influenced by pagan thought. And so he's thinking when he makes the vow, I will sacrifice something big for God if you, God, will do something big for me. That's why he made the vow. That's why he does what he does. And then he keeps the vow because he believed God had delivered on his side of the deal. He had given him victory over his enemies. And so Jephthah believed if he didn't keep his side of the bargain that God would strike him down or undo the deal and the folks would rise up and take over the Israelites again. So evidently, that's why Jephthah made the vow and that's why he kept the vow because of this. Follow me now. Because in this area of his life, Jephthah was more influenced by the culture around him than by God and God's word. That's why. Because these pagan ideas were influencing him more. This idea that you had to sacrifice something big for God to get him to do something big for you. He's more influenced by his culture than by God and the word of God. That's why he makes the vow. That's why he keeps the vow. Now why include this story in the book of Judges? What are we supposed to learn from this? Well this story teaches us. That believe as believers we can profess faith in God. We can hold strongly to many truths in the scripture. We can be used by God and do mighty things for him. 
and still be wrong about some really big things. In some areas, even believers can be more influenced by the culture around us where we live than by God and his word. This is an important point, so let me camp out here. Not just Jephthah. We see him, we're like, that's outrageous. How could he do that? But you need to understand that all believers, even followers of Jesus that have the Holy Spirit, that believe the truths of Scripture, in some areas we can be more influenced by the culture around us than by God and His Word. Let me show you in the Scripture. Let me show you through our own experience. And then let's make some application. First, the Scripture. Think about the Scripture. Think about Romans 12 and verse 2. Paul is talking to believers. And you remember what he says? He's been talking to people who are saved. He's explained justification by faith. He's talking about how nothing's going to separate us from the love of God. So he's been talking about all these things. And then he says, brothers and sisters, Christians, believers, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Question, why would he tell believers not to be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world? Because we've got a temptation to conform to the pattern of the world. Even after we profess faith in Christ, even after we've been justified by faith, even after we've been walking with God, we have a tendency to conform to the pattern of the world around us. That's why Paul advises Christians that in Romans 12 and verse 2. So the scripture shows us that this is true, that we're not totally made new in all areas of our life and our thinking, and we still have our flesh, those vestiges of the old person fighting within us, fighting against what God is doing. We still believe lies, even as Christians, which is why Ephesians 4 and verse 22 tells Christians to be active in putting off our old self, which belongs, he says, to your former way of life. That even as believers, we're still being influenced by that former way of life that we had. And so we're to be active in putting off our old self, which belongs to that former way of life, and is corrupt because of deceitful desires, we believe lies, and that we're supposed to be active in Putting on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So scripture shows us that the pattern of this world and our old way of life can influence even believers that have been used by God to do great things. That's what the scripture says. You see it in Jephthah. You see it in Romans 12, Ephesians 4. But you know this is true from your own experience, don't you? Think about it. There are some great theologians that have influenced me greatly, that said a lot of true things and accomplished a lot of great things for God, yet they said slavery was okay. Some of them even defended it. And the reason why is because you can be a believer, you can be somebody who does great things for God and still be wrong about a lot of big things. Come more current, let's get a little more modern day. 
There are Christian leaders who have really influenced me a lot. Their thinking, their writing have informed what I do so much, yet they didn't speak out against segregation, making some people go to the back of the bus, making some people get food out of the back of the restaurant, having separate water fountains. There are great Christian leaders who I believe had the spirit, who professed faith, who did a lot of great things for God and got it wrong on some big stuff. Keep on coming to the modern day. Ooh, he's getting closer to us. I know it's scary. Keep coming. You know of Christian leaders, people who have done great things for God, professed faith, preached the word, yet they are incredibly sexually broken, maybe even sexually abuse other people. You know of Christian leaders who do great things for God yet have an abusive leadership method or technique. Listen to me, listen. Just because we do big things for God doesn't mean we're right about everything. And the people we tend to give a pass are the people who are very spiritually gifted. So I want to say very clearly, being spiritually gifted does not mean that you are spiritually mature. Now, I don't know what your reaction is when you hear that. I'm thinking, hmm, maybe that accounts for why that leader did this and why that leader did that. But I want you to understand the big question for us. <laughs> you think just Jephthah was influenced by his culture and didn't listen to what God said? Do you think just the Romans that Paul was writing to, the Ephesians, do you think they were just influenced by their former way of life? That some of the great Christian leaders in the past who missed it on slavery, who missed it on segregation, some of the great Christian leaders who have been sexually broken, you think they missed it, but boy, we've gotten to the point where we're not missing anything. We've got it all right. Negative. For many of us, we are being more influenced by our culture or our former familiar way of life than we are by the Scripture. And if we are not committed to repentance... And I don't mean crying out to God because we don't like the way things are. I mean running to God like he's the highest thing and nothing is more important. If we're not committed to repentance, man, we're doomed to make these errors. That's why repentance is so important because we have blind spots. That even as Christians, we can make some horrible vows and do some terrible things. What would that be for us? What areas do you think we're more influenced by our culture or our former way of life than we are by the Scripture? Do we even want to guess some? No, let's not. Let's just close it. No, let's think about it. As I travel abroad, as I've had the opportunity to go some other countries, one of the things I would have to say is that if you live in this country, and I don't care how rich or poor you are, we have a skewed view of money and of things. And of consumerism. We've got to have some blind spots there. I would encourage you to cry out to God and, and ask him to show you how maybe you have some, you're more influenced by the culture around you about money and things than you are about God's word. What about politics? Dang it, I was hoping he wouldn't go there. Sometimes 
our Christianity is more influenced by our politics than our politics is influenced by our Christianity. I can't believe nobody said amen to that. Because that is true. And if we can't see that, we are doomed to making horrible errors and have history of the church which has damaged our witness to a watching world. Just stop. No, keep going. Here's another one. In the culture that we live in, our views of sex and sexuality are so skewed from what God's best for us is that it is very easy for us to be influenced by the world around us than by the word of God and God himself. I'd say sex and sexuality. Let's do another one. No, stop. No, keep going. We've got to be committed to repentance, to rooting these things out in our lives. How about race? I know it's been talked about a lot recently. But I had somebody say to me this week, I had somebody say, you know, I understand everything that's going on. I see what's going on. But I see these commercials that have interracial couples, the interracial dating. And I just, I can't accept that. Probably because of my own background and what I've already seen. And I'm like, yes, that is your familiar way of life. I don't think that's something that the scripture teaches. And if you want to hear more about that, come next week. We're going to look at Samson and Delilah, Delilah, an interracial marriage. And we'll talk about why that was wrong in the Lord's eyes. But if you grew up in the southeastern United States, then we've got to have some skewed views on race. Because our culture is so broken and messed up. Which way do you lean? Which way are you skewed? I don't know. Ask your heavenly father to show you. Because this story of Jephthah reminds us that even as Christians that God uses to accomplish big things, we can be far more influenced by our culture than, than what we think we are. And we can be far more influenced by our former way of life in some areas than by the word of God. And that's why this text spends so much time teaching us about repentance. Before telling the story, it shows us what repentance is and what repentance not. And why it's important not to be sold to those things. Because the lesson of this story is this. We need to learn how to repent. Because if we are not continually rep repenting, we will make some horrible choices with some horrible consequences. We must le learn to repent. We must continually die to our old self. We must be committed to continually putting on the new self. We must always be working to avoid being conformed to the pattern of this world or the pattern of the age, but always working on transforming our mind. So this story is chiefly about repentance, what it looks like, and why it's important. One final thought. Even as broken and messed up as Jephthah was, in his background... In his thinking, in his actions, God still used him. You can read this week in Judges 12 that even after Jephthah sacrificed his daughter in clear violation of the word of God, 
God gave him more victories over adversaries and allowed him to rule as the head of Israel for the rest of his days. Are you kidding me? No, that happens. And that shows us that God is so gracious to broken and messed up people. That he's so patient. That he's so loving towards us. It shows us that God uses broken and messed up people to accomplish great things. And and that gives us great hope that God can use us. But make no mistake. The story also teaches us that God loves us too much to leave us in our brokenness and our mess. And so he calls us to repentance. He shows us what it doesn't look like and what it does look like. He shows us the tragic consequences of not dedicating the Christian life to being a life of repentance. Let's pray and ask God to do that. In us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a horrible story. We hate this story. But it's a reflection of our own hearts. And I pray that even as much as we recoil at Jephthah, I pray that you would give us that same hatred of our own sin. That we'd be a people determined to root out anything that is inconsistent with you and your character and your image being formed in us. Oh, Heavenly Father, it's hard work and it's ugly work and we don't want to see our sin and we want to think that we're better than we are and we will walk away from here and we will forget this prayer. But I pray that you would help us to remember this story. And then we would remember the consequences of not being on to ourselves. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would remember your commitment to make us look more and more like Jesus. And in our better moments, we yield ourselves to you and ask that you would do whatever it takes to make God the highest thing in our lives. Please come and do that for your own glory And for our good, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.